0: You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. My name is Tim. I'm the community group's pastor here at CBC. Uh, if I have not yet had the privilege of meeting you, I've, it's been great because I've been uh, connecting with people that I've been texting with and emailing and, and, and are interested in getting connected to our community groups that I've never met. We've finally been making connections over the last couple of hours. So if that's you, if you're in this service, like, let's meet up after the service. I'd love to make that connection. But here we are. We're in Jonah chapter 3 today. And, and, and basically, we want to ask this question. Do you ever find yourself in a place where you're like, where you're doing, you're doing good. Like you're busy, you're being obedient to God, but you're, you're doing good, but your heart is just not in it. Like, do you ever find, do you ever find yourself technically doing what you think God wants you to do? Kind of like checking the box, but, but really like emotionally, spiritually, you're just, you're out, you don't care. Or maybe even you don't want to be there but you're doing the thing. You're doing the thing. You're getting it done, right? You ever find yourself in that spot? Let me tell you a story about me and a vacuum. When I was six years old, I, you know, this dreaded phrase of a six-year-old, dreaded phrase that would come from my mom every couple of weeks. My mom started saying, Timothy, it's time to clean your room. And I'm gonna show you how to clean your room and I'm gonna show you how to vacuum. You're gonna use this vacuum on your own and you're, you're gonna be able to be in charge of your own space and you're gonna learn responsibility and you're gonna clean your room. It's time to clean your room. And so we would go upstairs and, and, and you know, of course my room is just, a, this bomb has gone off in my room. And so we, we start the process of cleaning it up. My mom's walking me all the way through it. So a couple of weeks later, Timothy, guess what time it is? It's time to clean your room. And I would roll my, roll my eyes and go upstairs, do the whole thing again. And then, and then a little bit later, she says, okay, now Timothy, you're going to do this on your own. Go ahead. It's time to clean your room. And I'd go upstairs. And I had, these, I had these toys, little green army men. And I had, and because they were cheap, I had like 15 bags of these things, which, and I'm not kidding. This is no exaggeration. I may have added like 700, maybe 1,000 of these little green army men. And I would set them up, set these scenes, these elaborate war scenes, battle scenes, where guys were launching, you know, launching rockets from the bunk beds over to the guys at the dresser over there. And, 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 and I would get to my room. I'd cross the threshold of my door and see this great army calling me to engage, right? And so I would get distracted. As a six-year-old boy would, I'd end up playing And and my mother mother would come up a few minutes later or or a while later and say, Timothy, you're not cleaning your room. And so she would stand there in the doorway and watch me as I would do all the things. And then she would would say, no, don't don't forget, get get behind there. And I realized, man, it's way harder to clean my room when my mom is sitting there watching, right? And so a little bit later on, this happened over and over again. Finally, uh, you know, I, I go up, And I'm cleaning my room, or no, I go up and I'm playing into my room and I clean up a few things here and there. My mom comes up, Timothy, you didn't clean your room. And I say, Mom, how can you, how do you know? How do you know I didn't clean my room? And she would say, well, I didn't didn't hear the vacuum. I could tell I didn't hear the vacuum. So the next week, (laughs) I had this idea. (laughs) So I went upstairs and I took the vacuum and I plugged it in and I turned it on. And I played with my toys. <laughs> and then my mom came up. She shakes her head. She's like, Timothy, I can tell. You know, the vacuum was off. Everything was put away. She's like, you didn't clean your room. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you could hear the vacuum. Couldn't you hear the vacuum? She's like, I heard the vacuum. You didn't clean your room. I'm like, Mom, how do you know? She's like, I don't, there's no lines. There's no lines in the carpet. I'm like, ah, oh, lines. So the next week, Timothy... You're not allowed to call me Timothy, by the way, ever again, right? It's like, my name's Tim. She says, Timothy, it's time to clean your room. So this time I've got another, okay, I'm thinking through this. I go upstairs, I take the vacuum, and I push some things aside, and I just do this, (laughs) like really quick, all over the room, just making lines, 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 lines. And then I take the vacuum over to the side, plug it in, and turn it on, and let it run while I play with my toys. For a few more minutes, and I did this for years <laughs> without my mom knowing I succeeded. So it's it's scary. she ended she ended up finding out one day when I was telling somebody else about that story. It's scary. how easy it is for the human heart to find itself in this place where you just go through the motions without like without turning it on, without engaging, without actually being there and and getting the point, right? Like to do what we know the Lord wants us to do, but without caring, without being awake and alive to the Lord and what he wants to accomplish in us at that very moment, the way that he wants to shape us, the way that he wants to help us see something, because we're not not fully engaged, we're kind of just sleepy, we're just drifting, but we might be getting the thing done. Like, we might be technically checking the box and obedient, but we're just kind of, we're drifting through life. Do you ever feel that? I've, like, I'm, I feel that. But here's the good news, right? This is great news for us. We're not the first ones to struggle with this, and, and the prophet Jonah did the same thing. And Bill and I, we, as we were talking about this this past week, he and I both agree, based on the scholarship that we've read and, we're convinced that the, the, the reason we have the book of Jonah is because at some point later in his life, after this, you know, after the story concludes, later in his life, he must have st- like stopped, turned around, looked at his, him, himself, his own heart, and said, man, I was an idiot. I was a fool. I need to write my testimony. I need to share with God's people the stupid things that I did, the mistakes that I made so that they don't do what I did so that they don't repeat the same kind of behavior that I was, was guilty of. And that's why we have the book of Jonah, right? So it's obviously written by him. It's from a perspective that is fully his. Like, you know, you can't get inside another whale with another dude and listen to his prayer, right? Like, this is, these are his words. And Bill has already pointed out, here's the other thing. Bill's, Bill's already pointed out how the book never ends, it never fully concludes, right? Like, if you go to the end of chapter four, we'll actually see it in a second, but if you go to the end of chapter four, It's got this really weird, like, inconclusive ending. But it's actually very common. It's a very common literary device in the ancient Near Eastern literature. When an author wanted to write a story, wanted to write a narrative, an account, in such a way to to leave you thinking, what would I do if I were to write the last chapter. How would I respond if I were that guy? Who am I in the story? Who can I relate to? What they would do is they would leave the story unconcluded, on purpose, to get you to turn around, to put yourself in the story, and to ask, how should this be concluded? And so here's Jonah writing to you and to me, right? Like writing to those who come after him, basically saying, like, you know, I'm, we're going to show you, I'm, I'm, I'm been, I've been confronted with God's grace. I've been given the second chance, hearing the word of God. I want to show you how to, how to flourish under the word of God. But we're going to see this, and actually, I'll, let's just read the passage together. How do I handle God's grace? How do I respond to God's grace is the question we're going to be asking the text this morning. Jonah chapter 3, let's read together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let me keep going just for context. Chapter four, verse one, this is important. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. So he's still, so still not getting it, right? There's Jonah, still not getting it. And I'm not gonna preach on that. That's for Bill next week. But you cannot understand chapter three If you don't don't keep that verse, that phrase in mind, he was fuming, was not happy, not a happy prophet. So keep that in mind as we think about chapter three. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but this chapter is essentially, it divides into two sections, right? In the first section, the word of God comes, it's received, There's, there's a second chance and then there's a response. And then in the second section of this chapter, the, the word of God comes, is received. There's a second chance. And there's a very different, like a strikingly different response, something that we haven't seen yet in the book. And so, and so there's these, these two sections. And Jonah's gonna show us, listen, I want you to know, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna write this book after I, I'm gonna show you, this is how, how to flourish under the grace of God, how to respond to the grace of God in a healthy way, how to flourish under the good hand of a loving God. But first, he's gonna gonna take us here. He's gonna say, wait, let me me first show you how not to flourish. I wanna tell you a little bit about myself. He includes just just enough detail here that he shows us that he's still not getting it, still blind at this point, right? So how not to flourish. I'm gonna give you two things. Number one, how not to flourish. Number one, do what God says without loving what God loves. Do what God says without loving what God loves. Look at in verse one, it says, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Right? So, there's, so there's grace already, right? There's a second chance at life. There's a second chance even at ministry, right? Because God, he could have had Jonah spit out on the shores of Morocco or like on, on Patmos, you know, and had him exiled for the rest of his life and just kind of sidelined him and said, you're done, like, I love you, you're 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 safe. You're an idiot, so I'm, you're done, right? Right now, just there. Yeah. But he doesn't do that. He's like, no, I'm, I'm coming after, like, I wanna include you, you knucklehead. Like, I'm, at, I'm coming after you too. I wanna to include you. So here you are, back on mission. I'm gonna give you this mission, the same mission over again. And well, this sounds really familiar. Verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Same words that we see in chapter one. But here's this key phrase. This key phrase, that great city. And we know it's a key phrase because God himself repeats it multiple times throughout this short book. If God's gonna repeat himself as, as his kids, as his students of God's word, we listen, right? Like that's a, that's a key marker for us. So if you look at chapter one, verse two, it tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. And there's that descriptor, that great city. But now, Go to the very last verse in the book of Jonah. Flip the page, go to chapter four, verse 11, and look. This is the very last words of the whole book. And he calls Nineveh, what does he call Nineveh? Nineveh, that great city. And, and here in chapter four, now he's gonna talk about why, like why does he think it's so great? But, but Jonah, I mean, Jonah knows, he knows Nineveh, right? You don't need to describe, there's only one Nineveh. Like You don't need to set it apart. You don't need to describe it. God. So what's, what's going on here? What's, what's God at? What's he about? Look at, in chapter four, verse 11, he tips his hand and he tells why. Like, why is Nineveh so important? Why is it so great in my sight? He says, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also, much cattle. In other words, there are so many human beings there, people that I created in my my image, right, And livestock, my creation, which I care for. And I want to see them, I want to see them flourish. I don't take this lightly. Should I not, he says, should I not pity Nineveh? Should my heart not throb for them? Should I not have compassion? I have compassion on them. I love them. I want to see them thrive. I want to help them. And that is why I send you, Jonah. God looked at Nineveh and saw potential. Right? Jonah looked at Nineveh and saw evil. God looked at Nineveh and saw a whole bunch of people that could, could with a miracle, become part of his family. Jonah looked at Nineveh and saw a target blast zone, and he wanted them to to fry, his enemies. It was interesting, um, as I was researching this, I came across a lecture that where an archaeologist actually found, uh, they they dug up the modern city of Mosul, is ancient Nineveh, and they found cuneiforms on the palace wall that corroborate, they actually tell the story of a battle that happens in 2 Kings. And so it's like, this, it's just archaeology is just proving and proving uh, biblical history over and over again, right? And so, but what's, what's, what's hard to swallow is on these, and he showed the pictures on these, on these cuneiforms. There were Israelites outside of Jerusalem that they had captured, put stakes up and skewered them and just hung them there around the city. Like these, these, were, these were wicked, these are violent people, wicked people, and Jonah wants them gone. Like, these are his enemies. And he wants vengeance. He doesn't want them to repay. He doesn't want them to be part of the family. Like, No. He doesn't, Jonah does not want to be a part of it. CBC, it, it, if Jonah were here, right? And if he were talking to us and talk, and here we are in this great city. And he's like, listen, I would, I would think he would be saying, here's Savannah, this great city that God loves, filled with people that are made in his image. Tim Keller used to say, that in the city, there's more image of God per square inch than anywhere else in the world. There's something really special about cities to God. And he's put you here. He's put us here as a church. And, so, and his, I think his question would be like, do you, do you love what God loves? Do you look at this place, see all the different cultures and see the different communities, communities that look very different than you, right? Have different values than you. And do you, do you, does your heart respond the way that God's heart responds Like you look at and, and and does your heart throb with compassion and say, they need Jesus, and I'm gonna be, and I'm that's why I'm here. I'm part of this process, I'm part of this mission. And I'm gonna bring the good news that they need to hear. God, use me, right? Let me let me be a part of this great mission. That coworker that I can't stand, that 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 neighbor that's across the street, that's their yard's always a mess, those girls that are at school, those those catty girls that are just constantly. Chatty and pretty, like, that you just hate? Like, you know, like, they, like, like do, you, do, you, do you love what God loves? Do you have compassion in the same way that our God looks on people and have compassion? How not to flourish? Do what God says without loving what God loves. Number two, do as little as possible to get the job done. Look, look what happens. In verse 3, he says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Let me just, let me take a sideline here. This is not in my notes. I'm going to risk this. Um, so, two, two ways to interpret this phrase that I thought were kind of fascinating as I was digging into this this past week. Uh, literally, in the Hebrew text, it says, it does, like it requires three days to visit the city. It's a, it requires three days. So, some have interpreted that to mean, it just means it's so big. Like, if you were walking from, uh, you know, from Atlanta into the Savannah, like, if you were walking in that direction, right, and you came to Savannah, you'd bump into somebody in Berwick and say, hey, what's your address? You'd say, oh, Savannah, right? And then you'd get into the middle of the city the next day, say, hey, what's your address, Savannah? You'd go all the way to Tybee the next day. What's your address? Savannah, right? So it's, it could be, like, that big. It was, that may be what he was saying. But here's another interpretation was, they're saying, no, politically back then, because it was a royal city, because there was a king that resided in the city, there were certain political, there, there were certain diplomatic things that you would do. On the first day, you were just making greetings. You were saying hello. You would have a meal together. You kind of established relationship. On the second day, you would share your message and share the terms. Like, these are the terms. These are the things I want to demand. Or these are the things I want to ask. And then on the third day, after the, the king or the diplomat would have the chance to kind of sleep on it, consider the terms, on the third day, you would come to an agreement say your goodbyes and kind of have a course of action and say, okay, this is what we're gonna do in the future. So it's possible, it's possible that either Jonah was like, you know what, I'm a day day in, this is is fine. Here's here's my message and this is all I'm gonna do. Or it's possible that he was like, forget your customs. I don't care. I don't care about your, this is, and he just starts sharing this message. And what does he say? He calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. On the, on the surface, it looks like, okay, Jonah's, he's finally getting it, right? He's getting the job done. He's, he's finally, he's being obedient. He's preaching. He's doing his job. But, but this, what happens here, and, and when we stop and consider, in the Hebrew language, Jonah's message is only five words long. No fluff, no illustrations, no, no pleading, no explanation, right? No pleading with these people. And when I first read through this, again, this past week, when I first read through it, my assumption was, okay, well, it just must be like a summary, right? This is just the essence of his message. It's not the whole thing. It's just a summary of his message. Surely this isn't all he said, especially given their response. It couldn't be all he said. But here's what's up. Again, scholarship on the passage reminds us of something that's really significant. And it's almost so obvious that you can't believe that you miss it here. Every single prophet in the Bible. And if you're reading through the Hebrew Bible, Jonah is included in the book of the 12. It's called the scroll of the 12. It's the minor prophets. And Jonah's is right in the middle. So if you're reading through that scroll, you're seeing this over and over and over again. Every single prophet who would endeavor to take up the pen in scripture focuses on the message that came from God. That's the main point. And here Jonah devotes five words. He gives himself a whole chapter to write out his own prayer about thanksgiving for God saving him in chapter two. Gives God five words here. And even if Jonah was summarizing, like was every, every single prophet in the Bible includes these very similar elements. One, there's this, there's this uh, description of the human heart. Like this is what's going on. This is what's, like you guys are, are going in the wrong direction. And then two, there's this description of God's holy standard. Like this is, this is the wrong direction. This is the right direction. This is where you should be going. Three, there's this call to repent. Like, hey, come, come back to him, right? Like he wants you, turn to him. He'll give you grace. Four, there's this like, there's, there's clear warning. If you don't do this, this is what's coming, or because you didn't do that, this is what you're experiencing right now and this is why you're experiencing There's this clear explanation of judgment. And then within all of that, who's the bright, shining hero? Who's the center of that message of the prophets? In every single work, every single time, God is the highlight. God is the hero. Every single prophet follows this pattern. Except one. And it's our man, Jonah. So so is it possible that Jonah, right? So here he is, like this is Jonah's message, right? 40 days, y'all are gonna die, right? You're 40 days and you're getting smoked. That's his message. Even if it was like, and and it says in the text, he, he was preaching like on and on. He would preach this message over and over as he went through the city. 40 days, you're dead in 40, you're dead in 40. You got 40 more, enjoy your last 40. Forty days, you're all gonna die. Like you can all like in my mind, I'm thinking Jonah probably enjoyed this. He probably probably wanted nothing more than to share this message, and he couldn't care. Like you already know, he like he he doesn't care at this point. He's like God, just kill me. So he doesn't he doesn't care how they respond. He's willing to just be as extreme as possible. Is it possible that Jonah was giving the worst version of the message? One of the commentaries said that Jonah was sabotaging his ministry. He used the word sabotage, giving the most stripped-down, basic version of God's message on purpose. Would this be consistent with the story? Absolutely. Would it be consistent with the, the character of Jonah that we've come to know? Yes, absolutely. He does not want Nineveh to flourish under the grace of a loving God. It's kind of like this. I, there, there was a season when one of my boys was not putting in a lot of effort into life into, into some things that we would ask him to do around the house, and kind of cutting corners and just whatever, just doing the basic things to, to barely get the job done, uh, and, and kind of being lazy. And so we agreed. He and I agreed, and I asked him if I could share this story. He and I agreed. We said, "Hey, every time we catch each other, because like, you know I struggle with this too, so every time we catch each other doing something, cutting corners, just basically just getting the job done, let's let's do this. let's. Let's agree, on the spot, we'll do some push-ups together. We were doing a lot of push-ups. We were, so we were doing like, so we would do like 15 or 20 push-ups at a time together and then, and, and work toward being more disciplined and, and doing things like on purpose and, and being fully in, right? And so imagine this, right? Imagine I come home and uh, there's, a, there's a can of paint open in the garage, and a paintbrush stuck in it, and I come, I, you know, I come back home, I pull into the garage, and I look at the can of paint, and like the it's like dried, right? Like it's like, like it, the the paintbrush won't move; it's just solidified there, because he got halfway through a job, but didn't finish it, and you know the wall is like halfway done, or whatever. And I and I talk to him, I'm like, hey, bud, clearly we cut some, like we did, you didn't finish the job. What's going on? He's like, no, no, no. hey, it's okay, it's okay. Hey, watch, watch, and he gets down and starts doing push-ups, right? Like, it's, God, God says to his people, he's like, listen, I don't want, like, I don't, your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, I don't desire those things. What I want is your, is your heart. I want obedience, right? A broken and contrite and humble heart, right? It's not like, it's not like Tim Buchek. It's not like I have this, like, playlist of on YouTube of people doing push-ups because I just love push-ups and want to see more push-ups in my life. I need more push-ups in my life. This no, I don't want his push-ups. I want his obedience, right? And in a similar way, God's like with with Jonah. He, Jonah's like, "I, you don't make my mistake. If you want to flourish under God's good hand, flourish under God's grace. Your heart's got to be in it, right? Don't, don't just do the job halfway. Don't be half engaged." So that's, so that's, this is Jonah, how not to flourish under the grace of God. Now, despite his best efforts, look what happens in verse 5. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Friends, listen, this, like this is the pinnacle of the book of Jonah, That amazing storm, instantly swept up, instantly silenced in chapter one. Very cool, right? The fish, amazing, incredible, miraculous. This is the point. This is the greatest miracle. That 120,000 people or so would, would, rebellious sinners would humble their hearts, humble themselves and turn to God in repentance. This is awesome what just happened, right? And the people of Nineveh believed God. In fact, uh, if you if think about it, this is the greatest, like this is the biggest revival that ever happens, that we've ever got. Like as in the Christian history, whether it's in the Bible or in church history, nothing ever like this ever has ever happened since. 120,000 or so come to faith in God, put their trust in God. So here in these next lines, Jonah begins to highlight, right? So we already saw how not to flourish. Now he begins to talk about, okay, so how to flourish under the grace of God. This is what it looks like. This is how to flourish. And if you notice, the pace of the narrative dramatically slows down at this point. And Jonah focuses on every step of what's about to happen next. He wants you to catch this. He wants you to learn from this. He wants you to flourish under the grace of God. Look, verse six. He says, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne Removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Prophets had been preaching in Israel for centuries at this point. Not a single king of Israel ever responded anything quite like this. And instead of responding out of pride or defensiveness or anger, like he could have just like killed Jonah right then and there. He didn't, but he doesn't, right? He in humility the spirit-empowered word of God struck his heart. He heard it. He got it. Convicted his heart. And he responded. There's so much we can learn from this pagan king. And I think Jonah's telling us, this, this guy got it. Pay attention to him. And so what does he do? What can we learn from him? How, how to flourish under the grace of God? Four things. I'm gonna, I'll give you all four right now, and then we'll walk through them. Four things. Number one, get off your throne. Get off your throne, own your sin, call to God, and repent. Those are the four things, and I'll walk through them. Number one is get off your throne. The, verse six says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. Ironically, that word arose, that should trigger you now, right? Because you've read through the book of Jonah, where you've been with us, you've already heard this that very phrase twice in this book, even twice already today. Who was told to arise and to go, like to arise and to be obedient? It was Jonah, right? And here this pagan king, he, Jonah's using the same words, I think on purpose to play on words. He does what Jonah was supposed to do, but here he does it without prompting. And so he hears the word of the Lord. He stands up and he literally dethrones himself. He gets off his throne and he takes off his royal robes. And he leaves that. What is this? What's going on here? In the ancient Near East, what, what this was a symbol of was that he was saying, listen, I'm, 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 I'm out, right? I'm, there is a coming power that is greater than I, and I surrender. I'm off the throne. I give up the keys. I'm powerless against this. I'm at the mercy. I surrender. I'm at the mercy of what's coming. That's what they would do when they were conquered. And here he very beautifully, very symbolically, gets off his throne, takes off his royal robes, and says, "Whatever's happening here is too big for me. I'm out. I'm out. I'm off. I'm off the throne." And I love it. And we've got this awesome picture of decentralizing, letting go of your pride, letting go of your control, and and flourishing under God's grace, getting off your throne. So get off your throne. Number two, own your sin. Look at how this happens. He says, he arose from his throne, verse six, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And this, again, this is a deeply symbolic, ancient practice of lowering yourself. What's he doing? As the king, he's not considering the right to the throne a thing to be grasped, right, to be clung to. Instead, he's relating with his people, Sitting in ashes was like literally the lowest you could go, not even sitting on a chair like a common, common person. He just, he's sitting on the earth, in the ashes. Sackcloth was the cloth that would be used to make sacks, right, to, to, for your cows feed and stuff like that. It was the most base fabric. It was a rough fabric. It was the clothing of the poorest of the poor of those days. It was the lowest common denominator. And to clothe yourself in something, in biblical terms, to clothe yourself in something was to own it, like right? to be defined by it, to be marked by it, right? This is why in the New Testament, this the same language carries on in the New Testament where Paul says, clothe yourself in humility. And later on, clothe yourself in Christ. Like own it, right? Be wrapped in this, be, be defined by this. So the king is owning his spiritual poverty. He's owning his part. He's not dodging, right? He's not pointing fingers at his people and being like, look what you did to get us in trouble. No, he's, he's saying, no, 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 this, is, this isn't you, or it's not only you. This is me. I am, I am so, I'm guilty. I am with you. And he's owning his part. You know, one of the, one of the things that it broke my heart, one of the guys that I used to serve beside in ministry. Uh, when you would confront him about something. And he was a good dude, like a great teacher. He loved God's word. He was a, a great expositor of scripture and would love to teach. But if you confronted him with something, he would respond with a certain phrase or a certain kind of phrase very very often, very frequently. He would say, I'm, he would say, I'm sorry you were hurt or I'm sorry that hurt your feelings. I'm sorry you felt that way. And, like, to one degree, like, it kind of, it felt sincere enough that, you know, we would wrap up and keep moving and, and it'd say, okay, and things kept going. But, like, the cumulative effect of that over years, something was, it was something aching was missing. And I came to realize, it came, came to be that really he was, what it was, was he was too arrogant. Too arrogant to say not I'm sorry, you, but I'm sorry, I. I'm not, I'm sorry, you felt that way, but I'm sorry, I hurt you. I'm sorry, I said that. I'm sorry that I disappointed you. I should not have done that. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't own it, right? Linguistically, it's such a small, it's such a minuscule difference, right? Spiritually, that's gigantic, that is huge to take that leap of humility and to be able to own your stuff and say, I did that, I'm guilty, I did that. I can't believe I shouldn't have, but I did, I did that. And the king, he's modeling this for us. He owns it, wraps himself in it. So get off your throne, own your sin. Number three, call to God. Look at what happens here. In verse seven, he says, he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let, and this sounds kind of bizarre, right? Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let let them not feed or drink water. What's he doing, right? He's. I mean, obviously, he's calling for a full fast. And and a fast, if you you know think think through like a biblical definition of fasting is is it's a it's an act of prayer. You cannot like you can pray without fasting. In scripture, you never pray. You never fast without praying. To fast is to pray. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of prayer. You're taking this to the Lord. You're, you're, you're cultivating a hunger for God. You're, you're acknowledging your neediness, your dependence, your utter contingency upon him. And you're, and you're recognizing that my comfort doesn't come from the stuff of earth. It comes from him alone. Right? So there's, there's that going on. But I mean, this is it's almost comical, right? Neither man nor, nor beast can eat. And you're gonna cover the cows in sackcloth. right? They get all... Here, you know, here you go, Bessie, put your sackcloth on, you know, and then he says, like, neither herd nor flock, herd, I'm thinking, like, sheep, goats, right? flock, chickens? Like, you wicked chickens, like, are you, what are you gonna, like, you're making the chickens repent? This seems silly, but, but and it grabs you, right, because it seems so extreme, and that's exactly right, where the, the king is like, just, this is full stop, we're gonna do whatever we possibly can, we're gonna go to whatever end, right? completely, Nineveh, stop it. We're gonna stop all industry. We're gonna stop all business. We're gonna stop everything. Stop. We need to stop. We're not even gonna let our animals do our work for us. Stop, halt in our tracks, right? And then call out to God. And look how he says, he says, let them be covered in sackcloth, verse eight. Let them call out mightily to God, sincerely, wholeheartedly. And this is important, right? So they're not like, in the, in the act of fasting, in the act of putting on sackcloth, they're not punishing themselves because that's how some of us might read that. Like, oh yeah, they're like, woe is me, making, like, making myself feel bad for a while. No, so you can't pay for your sin. They, you can't, they can't pay by wearing cloth for this, the horrendous stuff that they've done for years to other people, the people they've murdered, right? They can't pay for that. They're not paying for it. They're they're owning and and humbly acknowledging. We're in the dirt here. We don't we 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 are we are at his mercy. And one of the things that we do in our home, one of the like practices that we teach is that reconciliation requires forgiveness and grace. Is extended and grace is received, right? And we and so we we try not to be legalistic about this, but we try to make this a habit. Where when wrong, when somebody is wronged in our home between our kids, when somebody's wronged in our in our home, we, we have we we have the kids talk through this to the point where one of them will ask for forgiveness of the other, and the other will look them in the eye and say, "I forgive you." Why Why do we do that? Because like, so, so if I, like right now, if I, if I come down and just square off and smack Byron, you know, and, 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 just, and, and do something just awful, right, wrong. If I, if I do that, if I hurt a brother, I have drawn a debt from him that I cannot repay. Or even with my words, if I say something really hurtful, I've drawn a debt that I cannot repay. What, you can't take words back. You can't undo that. You can't undo a smack, right? you you're like, you've done this thing that's wrong. There's a debt that's been drawn, what do you do with that at that point? There's only one answer. Scripture says there's only one answer, and that is forgiveness. That is grace. The person who was wronged needs to absorb the cost and release you. and 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 That's a that's a difficult process, but but for you, the one who's wronged the other person, to get to the point where you can say, I. I, like, I need your, would you please forgive me? At that moment, what, what's happening there is that you are, you're basically acknowledging, listen, the ball is in your court. I can't just say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, this is what we do. Like, often in our culture, in America today, we, we say, "Tell your, your kids, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. And then they walk off, right? They basically, have, what, they, what just happened was they've said, I'm done with this. I'm good, I'm concluded, and I'm off. But the, the relationship's not reconciled. Right? Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that forgiveness has been given. So when you, st- when you stop and you walk through this process, what happens is I, I'm saying, Byron, will you please forgive me? At this point, the, the health of our relationship is contingent upon his response and him giving grace to me. And when he says, I forgive you, like that, that softens my heart, right? No, I need to hear those words. You're forgiven how we need that in life. And the king recognizes this dynamic that's happening. We need to plead to God mightily that he would relent. We're, this is in his hands. We are, we are in his hands. Our fate is in his hands. Our future is in his hands. He doesn't owe us anything. And I love the fact that he even says, like, listen, he, maybe, like, who knows? Maybe he'll relent. He doesn't owe us, just because we've repented doesn't mean he still owes us, right? It's in his hands, it's up to him. That's the the kind of humility that we see here in this passage, and I love it. So, get off your throne, own your sin, call out to God, and then number four, repent. And we've talked about this enough already that I'll I'll just simply say, we're we're in, in, where he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The, the king names it, right? He calls out the sin that they were guilty of. And he calls them to turn, to repent. And this, the word turn, is this key concept linked with salvation all throughout scripture. That, and in the Hebrew, the word is shuv, to, to turn, to flip. When you're on a path, you're on a journey, you're, you're walking down a path and Somebody says, "Hey, you're, dude, you're going the wrong way," and you, or you come to this realization of like, "Oh my gosh, I'm going the wrong way," right? Like, you when you finally wake up to that, and, and you say, "I don't, I don't want to go the wrong way. I want to go the right way." What, what you do is you 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 flip it, you turn around, and you go the opposite direction, and you go the right the right way. You don't. It's not this word. There are other words for turning to the right, to the left, like finding another way, finding a creative way. That's not what's going on here. They repented. They flipped. They turned the opposite direction. We are all on a journey. Life is a journey. And by nature, we, we don't go the right way automatically. Like our GPS is broken. Our sin nature uh, has us, right? So the prophets come. The word of God comes and says to us, hey, that's the wrong way. This is the way. Like, your way leads to, to destruction and harm. This way leads to life and goodness and flourishing and and you have an opportunity and i have an opportunity do we do we re- repent do we shove do we turn there's something that's really important for us to hear as americans western culture has this category in our head where we think we can believe but it's mostly up here we have this category where we say yeah i believe i believe in god and yet, our, like, we're still like, our, our life is going this direction. Like, yeah, I believe in God. And we're doing the things that are like, we're dabbling in stuff that's clearly on the wrong path in the wrong direction. But we're saying, no, no, I really do believe in God. Like, I know he exists. I, I, know, he, I know he gave his son to die on the cross for my sins. I recognize that. I've prayed the prayer. I even, like, we had a good time together. Like, I... I Went to camp, whatever, I prayed the prayer, I was maybe even baptized, but you're still like you're still just walking and not turning. And and, and Jonah says, if you want to flourish in life, you need to you need to repent and turn away from what is destructive and cling to what is good and holy and helpful. That'll help you flourish under God's good hand. I love I love that Jonah would write this out in such a way that we would see that we could learn from his mistakes, that we could learn from this king's good response how to flourish under the grace of God. And this king, this king, there's something about this king. If only today, if only there was a king who would leave his throne would listen to the word of God the Father. If only there was a king who would clothe himself in the garb of his people, who would lower himself to the dust of earth. If only there was a king who would choose to call his people to choose life and to follow God and repent. Do we, do we have such a king? You know we do. Right? Listen to these words from, from Philippians. Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippian church, and says, have this mind among yourselves, right? Which is yours in Christ. He's talking about humility, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's his throne, right? His position. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why, why did he do this? Why do we have this king? This king This king, paid on the cross, paid for the sins of Nineveh in that moment, on that cross. right. And, and even our king, when he was here on earth, talked about Nineveh and said, these guys are going to be, these men and women are going to be in heaven. He says, they're going, to be, they're going to be standing at the throne room, at the judgment seat. They're actually going to be witness against the non-believing generation that Jesus was a part of. They're going to be there. You and I are going to get to meet them someday if you're in Christ. And here, and here this king in Jonah's, story, points to our ultimate king, who allows us, who invites us to flourish under the grace of God. So do you, does the Lord see this kind of humility in you? Do you you get off your throne? Do you own your sin? Do you call out to God? And do you repent and turn to him. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of your word, and even the way that this story is crafted. It's marvelous to me. And I pray, Lord, even now, right now, I know there are some in the room who may be try, just trying to make, trying to, to, to justify, excuse, like that last corner of the throne that they want to hold on to and cling to. And I, Lord, I pray for humility. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to flourish under the good grace of our loving God, to decentralize or to, to let go of the throne, own our stuff, call out to you in desperation, and repent and turn to you for forgiveness. I ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.